welcome. Good morning. Good to see you on our third uh, week of Advent. And uh, as we were just uh, thinking about this idea of the light of the world has come and the light of the world is coming, that's really at the heart of Advent. And just as a reminder, um, the word Advent does mean arrival or coming. And so if there's somebody coming, that means somebody's waiting. And we're on the waiting end of that equation. Certainly there were God's people who were waiting for the first arrival of Christ. And then here we are waiting for his return. And so with all of that in mind, um, this, this passage that we're hitting in Revelation, these first three chapters, just has been a great encouragement to me as I think about waiting. I want to wait well. And there are days when I really do a good job of that. And then there's other days when not so much. And I'm sure you can relate. So uh, I hope that today will be a great, great encouragement to you in the midst of your waiting, whatever that looks like. Um, A couple of thoughts while you are waiting. You will face spiritual opposition from the world, the flesh, and the devil. No questions, absolutely guaranteed. I don't know what, what that will look like, feel like, be like. I just know because God's word says it's true, it is true. So no surprises there. Secondly, in the midst of that fight, I think we will wonder, why me? Why is it so hard? Is what I believe actually true? And is the fight worth it? And we can't control the thoughts that enter our minds in the midst of hardship, right? But what we do with those thoughts is super important. I I do hope that today, the stuff that we're looking at will help us answer those questions when they arise in our hearts and in our minds. You and I will be tempted, as these churches were tempted, to coast, to compromise, or to even quit. And I think John, who wrote this letter 2,000 years ago, he would say, stay at it. And I'm gonna give you some great reasons for doing that. Here's a question. It's actually two questions, one phrase. I think you'll get what I'm talking about here. What are you waiting for? That's the phrase. It's amazing what punctuation does for a sentence, right? So you could say, what are you waiting for? Like I just, is there something out there that you're hoping, you're expecting, anticipating? What are you waiting for? Or what are you waiting for? Like, let's get with it. Let's go. I think both of those questions are super helpful while we're waiting. And I think this passage is gonna help us answer both of them. So we've titled this series, Dear Church, and we've gone through chapters one, two, and three over the last couple of weeks. We're gonna go back through chapters two and three again, but with a different focus. We're gonna focus on two phrases, both of which are said in all seven of those letters. The first one is, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Now, that statement is made to individuals. If you'll remember, the flow of each letter starts with a corporate to the church, a corporate commendation in most of the letters, a correction in most of the letters, not all, some recommendations about how to respond, and then we get to this phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So it's like we get to listen in to the Lord's discipleship of churches that were around 2,000 years ago. And we're meant to hear it, not just as a kind of a passive observer, but we're supposed to go, that's for you too. There's something for you to hear and we can direct our attention anywhere, right? But we're meant to hear his words to these churches so that we can make an application to our own life in the here and now. Uh, In Revelation 2 and 3, what we're told to do is not only to hear the message, but also to heed what the Spirit says to these churches. That's actually biblical listening or biblical hearing. Hearing would mean spirit-led change for the better. It's not just that you caught it audibly, it's that you did something with it in your life. James says it this way, James 1.22, be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. So if we just hear it and don't do anything with it, we're prone to deception. But there's a promise for those of us who will hear and heed. James says this in verse 25, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer that forgets, but a doer that acts. Here's the promise. He will be blessed in his doing. There is a reward for listening and applying what we hear in these letters to the churches. The second phrase that also appears in all seven of these letters to the churches is the one who conquers. Did you guys notice that in some of your uh, translations that may say the one who overcomes? So that's gonna be our focus for today. And there's a few things to consider when we come across that phrase, questions we probably ought to ask. Who is Jesus talking about? When he says, the one who conquers, who is that? And what does conquering mean? How will I know if I have or I haven't? What's at stake if I do or I don't? Does it even matter? The statement for the one who conquers seems to assume that failing to conquer is a real possibility. Otherwise, why would you put it in there? Failure to conquer ensures a failure to receive what is promised if there's something promised as a response. And assurance to those who conquer seems to be intended to motivate. Like it's giving you reason to persevere. For those who conquer, not everybody will, but to those who do, here's what you get as a result of that. Here's what you get to look forward to. Uh, This isn't just limited here, although I think a lot of people interpret these two chapters, chapters two and three, 
and not have a rewards understanding of this text. We'll get into that in a minute. But Hebrews 10 says this. Again, a letter written to people who were suffering persecution, hardship, all of that. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And without faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So if nothing else, one of the things I'm trying to do today is to make a good case for understanding these two chapters and particularly this phrase about conquering with a context of reward. But that's not the way it's understood by everybody. I wanna give you four views of conquering that are out there. If you read about these passages in this phrase, this is what you're gonna come across. And these are general statements. Uh, I'm, I'm indebted to J.H. Keithley who kind of uh, whittled this down to these four phrases. But here's four, four ways you can understand the idea of conquering. First of all, that it secures salvation. Or to say it, in its opposite, if you don't conquer, you won't be saved. That's what that view would state. Number two, conquering proves salvation. So therefore, if you don't conquer, it proves you weren't saved. Number three, conquering is synonymous with believing. And in that sense, conquering is irrelevant. If you believed, then you'll conquer, whatever that means. And then lastly, conquering secures, and I'm speaking about conquering in chapters two and three of Revelation, conquering secures rewards that are reserved for faithfulness. And that's obviously where I'm landing as I think about it. Um, there are other places that do refer to conquering. I'm gonna mention one in a moment that I don't think refer to rewards. I think they apply to everybody I think they are a condition of who we are as believers in Christ. But that doesn't mean that that's what it means in Revelation 2. So let's think through these, these views and their implications. If conquering means I, that's my means of salvation, that contradicts Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, a gospel of salvation by grace through faith, not a result of works, Right? So we have to keep in mind that salvation is a gift, not a reward, that, but that doesn't mean there aren't rewards for other things. There is substantial biblical evidence for rewards promised to believers who are faithful. A lot of other passages all throughout our New Testament that point to an idea that there is something awaiting for those of us who are faithful in the day-to-day. -day. Conquering behaviorally in the here and now isn't guaranteed for believers. And we know that, I mean, just imagine in the first century, I'm sure there were some who under the sword said, I, you know what, I, it's okay, I'm just, don't worry about me, I'll just disappear, just out of their own fear. I, I get that, do you? Right? That'd be hard. 
and go way beyond that, just to all of the other ways that believers were persecuted. It's hard to persevere. So it, it would seem strange if you're saved by grace through faith, but you, you lose heart that somehow you lose it all. You see what I'm saying? But is it possible that by losing heart, you do lose something? I think that's where we're gonna land here in just a moment. But let's make a distinction between positional truth and practical truth. Or biblically, the idea of an inheritance, which is not earned, it is a gift, right? If you receive an inheritance from God, that's a gift of his. There's a difference between an inheritance and a reward. A reward is given in response to certain choices and behavior. So we're making a distinction between those two, positional truth, practical truth. Here's the kind of the key passage for positional truth for overcomers. 1 John 5, 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone, here it is, who has been born of God, everyone who has placed their faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. I'm just interpreting that there. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. They will be saved. They will go to heaven. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So that form of overcoming, that form of conquering is eternal, it is ultimate, and it is a fruit of our faith. The passage ends, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, okay? Now, what happens is people take that passage and they just apply it to Revelation 2 and 3. So when they see that same word, the conqueror or the overcomer, they just go, well, it must be talking about the same thing. We have this little rule when we're interpreting our Bible and that is that context is king. So we have to look at the context of Revelation and see is it different than the context of 1 John. The context for conquering in Revelation, as we have seen the last couple of weeks, it's a confrontation of Jesus and his church. These are believers they're given corrections, they're given commendations, they're giving encouragement around how to live and how to respond and all that. And then it seems very obvious that there is a group called conquerors and there are rewards or promises related to their obedience in the here and now that are not guaranteed in the future. They are contingent. Now here's our key passage for that idea. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. This is gonna be our interpretive framework for understanding these two chapters. Here's what Paul writes. According to the grace of God given me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So he's establishing the gospel. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation, which is beyond the gospel, 
If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest or obvious for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Quick pause. Remember, as we went through these letters, a phrase that came up again and again, remember the Lord said, I see your works. Remember that? But salvation isn't as a result of works. So why would he say that if he wasn't talking about something else? Here's the end of the passage in 1 Corinthians 3. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, in other words, it's tested by fire and it survives, he will receive a reward. That's just as plain as it can be. And if that weren't enough, if anyone's work is burned up like wood, hay, and stubble, he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. I, guys, I think we just have to be so careful that we're not sloppy with our theology just because we've heard it our whole lives. It seems like there is a place for loss in heaven. Have you ever heard that? See, most of us are just like, heaven is just this blissful thing. I die and then everything is absolutely awesome all the time. So I don't know what you would do with this passage if that were the case. It doesn't mean that heaven isn't awesome. It just means that God created things in such a way that how I live today does matter there and that somehow my works are gonna remain or burn up. And if they remain, I get a reward. If they burn up, I suffer loss. I don't know a whole lot beyond that, but that seems to be what the text says. Now, the judgment that Paul is pointing to is one of two that we find in our New Testament. The first is in Revelation 20. It's called the great white throne judgment. And that is the judgment that God will make between believers and unbelievers. That is the ultimate judgment of salvation. You're either saved or you're not. That's the great white throne judgment. Then there's the judgment seat of Christ. That is found in 2 Corinthians 5.10. Here's what it says there. Paul says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, some of us may hear that and it makes us a little uncomfortable. Like what's all this judgy stuff and rewards and consequences? I just thought it was heaven. Can't we just get on with it? No, <laughs> the Lord says it's gonna matter. And here's what we should hear. When we read that, we should go, there's rewards waiting for me if I'm faithful, if I stay the course, if I just stand firm. Eternal reward for just doing what God says to do that it should be motivating for us. It's not meant to loom over us like a parent gonna slap your hand if you don't get it right. He's saying, I want to reward your faithfulness, your dependence upon me, your obedience to the leadership of the spirit.
I'm giving you incentive to following, to waiting well. So with all of that in mind, let's look at the rewards for the ones who overcome. And I, I wanna say, um, this is very challenging, these seven letters in these two chapters, because there is language used here that is used elsewhere and teasing out what each of them mean. They don't always mean the exact same thing. Like that's just challenging. And I would say this, I've done a whole lot of reading and listening over the last few weeks. And anybody who is dogmatic about these interpretations, I would just say they lack humility. I think there are things that we can take from this that we're meant to take. And I think there's a whole lot here that's mysterious. It's heaven, it's eternity. It's things that we can't even get our minds around, but we can trust what God says is right and good. Now we know, I said this a minute ago, the gospel doesn't allow for a works-based salvation. So we need to keep that in mind. If this is about rewards, Rewards don't make sense if every believer is just gonna do the right thing. There, there has to be some kind of contingency there. Here's where I've landed to try and put all of these two chapters together. I'm put it in a slide. The best solution seems to be interpreting the promised rewards that come after the statement, the one who conquers, as heightened personalized experiences of life with Christ, which are described using familiar biblical terms and imagery, but without a clear explanation of the details. Now, I'm just telling you guys, I struggle to try and put into words what I think this is saying. And heightened personalized experiences of life with Christ, that's the best I've got. That motivates me that there's something about how I interact with my Lord in the afterlife that, that is determined by how I live today. That's motivating for me. I hope that it is for you as well. So with that in mind, let's look at uh, the rewards and uh, how they play out in each of these churches. And it is interesting that the rewards seem to counter the threat or the failure that's listed in the uh, engagement of the Lord with each of these churches. We'll start with Ephesus. I, I came up with just a one or two word description of their deficit and, uh, and then the promise and what that means. So for Ephesus, loveless orthodoxy, loveless Orthodoxy. Remember, they believed the right stuff. They worked hard. They did the right thing, but they had abandoned the love that they had for Jesus. That was his correction. He said, I have this against you. So it would make sense that the one who overcomes is the one who resists that loss of love, who does the right things, believes the right things, does all that, but they do it with the love of Christ at the core of their motivation. To those, those overcomers in Ephesus and anybody else in all of history that might relate to this context of loveless 
orthodoxy, he says this, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, this is one of the more difficult passages to interpret because most people see tree of life and they just automatically go, oh, that's eternal life. That's exactly what that means. But we need to slow down and go, well, if this isn't about salvation, if it's about rewards, then maybe it also has some other significance. Think about it this way. The tree is a real thing. It's not a metaphorical thing. There was a real tree, Genesis 2, in the Garden of Eden, right? So it sounds like there's gonna be a real tree in the new heavens and the new earth. And, and our interaction with that, our access to that, again, I don't know what it means, but it seems like if we overcome loveless orthodoxy, we are gonna be given access to that tree, which is in the paradise of God, which is garden imagery, in a way that we wouldn't if we didn't. Does that make sense? So the reward highlights a restored proximity to God's steadfast love, which the Ephesian church had abandoned. And I do think it's helpful when, when we think about a new heaven and a new earth, it would be strange if that were completely unlike the first heaven in terms of like, are there trees? Are there paths and sky? And you see what I'm saying? Like that would be kind of weird if he says there's gonna be a new heaven and new earth, but it's not gonna be anything at all like what you've experienced as far as heaven and earth. So it's helpful to think of these more concretely and to say there really is a future, there really is space and time and all that, and we're gonna interact in that context. So there's the reward for those who overcome loveless orthodoxy. Smyrna, ominous persecution, ominous persecution. This was one of those churches that did not have a correction, but an observation that they were facing incredible uh, oppression by their surrounding culture. They are promised, the overcomers in that church are promised the crown of life. And they're also promised they will not be hurt by the second death. Now that phrase crown of life is used only two places in our New Testament, here and in James 1. And the opening of James is written to those who are trying to persevere under trial. So the crown of life is only mentioned in those two biblical passages. And in both places, the crown of life is given specifically to those who remain steadfast in the face of persecution. So it seems like that crown, there's actually several crowns, the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory. Sometimes it's just crown, several places, lots of different crowns for lots of different things. So it doesn't seem like this crown is given to everyone. It is given to those who stand strong in the face of ominous persecution. It doesn't make them better or worse than anyone else. It's just what Jesus says, I'm gonna give to you in light of your experience and your response to life in a broken, sin-wrecked world. Very encouraging. Now that second statement will not be hurt by the second death. Every believer will 
be saved from the second death. That's the eternal separation from God. It is interesting in this statement, uh, in this particular chapter, it is, in the Greek, it is emphatic. It's almost like overstated just to encourage these believers because they, their life is on the line and saying, one thing you don't have to worry about is the second death. Don't even give it a thought. You, you will die in this life, but that's it. And from there, it's heaven and it is reward for your faithfulness. That's Smyrna. Pergamum, earnest but undiscerning. Earnest but undiscerning. Remember, they were doing a lot of good things, but they had allowed some of the world to creep in to begin to affect some of what they were doing or some of the people in their congregation. That was the correction that the Lord gave to that church. To those who stand firm in that, push back against that, who remain, here's the promise. I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. That's in chapter two, verse 17. Now the mention of manna should point us back to Israel in the wilderness. Remember God provided manna from heaven for them. That was his provision of food. And a portion of that was taken and was put in the Ark of the Covenant, which was also placed in the Holy of Holies within the temple. So, that's one thing. Then there's this white stone that is given, and that stone often represented a statement of acquittal for one who had been declared guilty. That was how they could, could give them that white stone, and they could take that with them and say, I am not guilty. I have been declared not guilty. And that white stone has a name on it given by the Lord to the overcomer, and it's known only to them and the Lord. So when I put all of those together, those rewards collectively seem to point to a pure and undefiled intimacy between the Lord and the faithful son or daughter. Think about the manna in the ark, in the Holy of Holies, and a name known only to Jesus and you. That communicates intimacy, it seems. And how do you compare, which we shouldn't, intimacy of just your average believer and this person? I don't know. I don't know what it is, but it seems that the Lord is pointing to something here that is tied to pushing against compromise. Thyatira, they were morally permissive. So they kind of took Pergamum to another level. They had really allowed the world to come in and just saturate their congregation. And uh, so here's the promise to those, again, who overcome, who persevere in the midst of that onslaught. Those who keep my works until the end, I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as with earthen pots 
as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star, often a reference to himself. That's Revelation 2, 26 through 28. So it seems here that the people in the church should have a sense of authority over what does and doesn't happen in their relational context, right? There's the Lord of the church. He says, this is what you should do. This is what you shouldn't do. And the people in that body, they're the, they're the ones who kind of toe the line on that. They, in this church, they dropped it. They just let it all sweep in. But there were some who seem to be fighting the good fight in that regard. And so it looks like, I mean, make no mistake, the Lord is eventually and ultimately going to judge all that is in opposition to him. That is going to happen. And those who stand their moral ground and preserve the virtues of God's design within a corrupt culture will somehow exercise authority with Christ over the nations. Once again, I can't say more than that because I don't know. But we can say that. We can say there's something about those who stand in this way are gonna be associated with Jesus as he judges the nations. They're gonna have a role in that somehow. And that is a reward for standing faithful in the midst of a culture gone wild. Sardis. They were a religious counterfeit. Remember, they gave a great impression outwardly, but inside, no life there. There were some in that church that were alive, that were trying to fight the good fight, that were trying to stay firm. And to those, those overcomers, the Lord says, they will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. This is the second church where it's probably most difficult to interpret this in light of rewards because a lot of that sounds like that. Isn't that true of every Christian? And in one sense, you would say, yes. It is interesting that he uses uh, the idea of a name in the book of life and a name, having a name before the father and the angels. Do you remember that Sardis had a good reputation before their culture, but then God knew the truth about them? This is the reverse of that. These overcomers have a great reputation and the Lord is going to display that in them by the robes that they wear. And these white robes, I think, are different than other white robes that are mentioned elsewhere. But there's something about what they're wearing and that they will be marked by the name uh, of Christ and this faithfulness. There's something about that that is going to declare to everyone their reputation is genuine. It is authentic. It is true. So in contrast, to a duplicitous reputation, these overcomers will be known as those who live with integrity despite the cost of doing so. Philadelphia, 
another church that was given commendation without correction. They were seemingly vulnerable. The, the one thing about them, he said, I know that you're powerless. And in a sense, maybe he's acknowledging that would be your reason for just giving in, just saying, you know what? It's too much. It's too big. We're just little old us. How can we stand? And he's saying, some of you are. And those who stand despite being powerless, despite being seemingly vulnerable, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. It seems that those who remain faithful to Christ and his word in the face of evil and overwhelming aggression, despite their vulnerability, they will be rewarded as a standard bearer for God, distinctly marked by his goodness and glory for all to see. Once again, there's some spatial stuff here about a temple, about being in a place with God, that I think um, we ought to give serious consideration just from, from a concrete sort of way. But they are gonna be standard bearers because they did that in this church and in this culture. Lastly, Laodicea, they were apathetic and unaware. Apathetic and unaware. probably the worst case scenario of the seven churches that we come across. But he's calling out to those within that church. He's inviting them to stand firm, to fight the good fight, to overcome, to persevere. And to those who do that, here's the promise. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. I don't know that that's said to everybody. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. That's quite a promise. That's motivating, isn't it? Overcomers in this church were constantly bombarded with the arrogance and apathy of self-reliant people. That was the reality of their church. But these people, like Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, they don't lean on their own understanding. They trust in the Lord with all their heart. They acknowledge him in every way, despite their culture, despite their church. They trust in him and stand accordingly. And their reward is an extraordinary audience with the king seated on his throne with him. I wish I knew all of the details of all of these things. But what I would encourage you to do is don't take my word for it. Think about this, pray about this, ask the Lord to show you, is there something here that puts a fire in your heart that allows you to stand firm in a culture that is literally out of its mind. That is the intent here, I believe, to help us be 
faithful. So here's our question. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Whichever applies. Right? There's, there's so much of life in front of us. So many things to do. So much to give ourselves to. And perhaps today you are reminded that whatever you give yourself to here has real significance for what you will have there. Be encouraged by that. So we shift into asking this question that we always ask, so what? I wanna invite you, I believe that the Lord surely has something specifically for you. Um, we have ears and we have been listening to what the Lord said to these churches. And so what is it that he would want you to not only hear, but to apply in response? You're in all different kinds of circumstances, um, but how can you put this into practice? I, I wrote this question down. How much capacity do you want to have for the joy and responsibilities of heaven? You're sort of determining that in your life today. Jesus is our greatest treasure. So we're not, we're not saying that this reward is somehow more important than him. He is our greatest treasure. God's glory is our greatest aim. But this does have a place in terms of how we process, how we live day in and day out. So ask the Lord to show you how you can apply this to your life today. And then I'll close this in prayer in just a moment. Okay. that we can identify with and that we struggle with and hope for and so thank you for the encouragement that we get from your word pray that you would help us to understand how to apply it today to walk in it to trust you for it thank you for being a good father speaking to us encouraging us loving us changing us Lord we're grateful for all of that we do want to be a church that clearly displays your goodness and your glory to a watching world. We thank you and pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, here's what we want to do. Um, we want to stay in kind of an attitude of prayer. And each month on one of the Sundays, we'll just 
have a, a little more focus on prayer, corporate prayer. And so we want to invite you into that. We are going to pray generally, but I want to ask you to do something for me. This will help us kind of be reminded of, of life and this congregation and all that. I imagine, you know, we all came in here, it's Christmas, we're dressed up, we're smiley, we're all excited. But then there is this reality. This can be the hardest time of the year, right? For all kinds of reasons. So let me illustrate. How many of you right now, when you think about Christmas and this holiday season and all that, you think family is really hard. Could be marriage, could be parenting, could be extended family, could be a loss that you're grieving. Could be a lot of that. How many of you would say, you know what, family is kind of a challenge for me. Raise your hands, look, look around. Yeah. Work, how about work? And that can be hard, right? That's, that's you right out there in the world, trying to be faithful, but there's just a lot about that that can be challenging. You might've lost a job. Maybe you're afraid you're gonna lose a job. Maybe you're looking for a job. How many of you can relate to the difficulties of work in this season? Look around. Yeah, for sure. Health. Man, we are fragile people. And uh, there is certainly sickness, but there are diagnoses and recovery and hardship in, in that respect. And it might not even be just us. It might be someone in our family or a good friend. How many of you are kind of feeling that maybe anxiety or difficulty around health? Yeah. And then lastly, it seems like our culture is always talking about the economy and money, right? The financials. And we probably all feel some strain there, some uncertainty, like what's gonna happen next year and all that. But money, like how many of you feel the financial strain? I'm not sure if we're gonna make next month's bills or I'm not sure what's gonna happen to my 401k or what, right? Okay, so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna pray for those four areas, but we wanna ask you to pray for those areas. And you will be praying for the people in this room that are really feeling it. They raised their hand today and said, yeah, me. Okay, so let's just pray together. Let's go to the Lord and ask him to meet us in this place of need at this time of the year, okay? Let's pray. Father in heaven. So grateful that we can come to you, that you are so attentive, that you care so much, and that you love to meet us in our place of need and be sufficient. So Lord, I think about health and uh, that can be such a scary thing, such a hard thing for a lot of different reasons. So you made us, you are the great healer. You are the sustainer of all of life. And so we bring our fragile health to you and that of our friends and our family, people that we know around us. Lord, we bring that to you and ask for you to care for us, to provide for us, to sustain us, to heal us. 
And Lord, wherever we might be feeling anxiety about, maybe it is a diagnosis or some tests that have been run or whatever, Lord, would you give us peace as we wait and as we endure those hard things. Thank you, Lord. Lord, uh, as we come to you about family, uh, I think of your exhortation to us where the writer of Hebrews says very clearly to come before your throne of grace boldly. And Lord, if uh, anything breaks our hearts more, I don't know what it is than family members who are struggling spiritually, who are not getting along, who are not seeing eye to eye and the tension and awkwardness that brings in relationship. And so, Lord, I pray you would give us a a beautiful gospel perspective that uh, one is hurt people hurt people. And uh, Lord, if 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 we stay around folks long enough, we're going to hurt someone. We're going to be offended. We're going to offend. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to have the courage to do what you did to us. Uh, You give us grace. You give us truth. And you give us patience and time as you deal with us. We're your family members, but we're always off the mark somewhere, somehow. And so, Lord, as we approach other relationships in our family, I pray we would have that mindset of uh, certainly grace and truth and and time that... uh, Lord, you're at work. If they're not dead yet, you're at work. So I pray, Lord, we would be uh, instruments of healing and reconciliation and patience and long-suffering, that we would play the long game and yet not compromise or fold uh, spiritually or to the world when dealing with our family members. Uh, Help us to lead the way um, in terms of the cross and the way to absorb pain and walk in it well. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning, Lord. As we reflect on our work lives, first of all, we're grateful for the opportunities that you do present. Grateful for the mental, the physical capabilities that you gift us with. We realize we are immensely blessed in that regard. We're not immune to the fact that we live in a sin-filled world. We're, we're not ignorant to that either. And we look at the ramifications, whether it is geopolitical events or we may fret about macroeconomics. We may have concerns, worries, anxieties about our own department, relationships within our own division, our company. Whatever those might be, Lord, we really do want to pause in the midst of that storm and reflect on the fact that Christ is the sovereign over all, that he is Messiah. We look at Colossians and we see Christ having made all and sustains all, the entire cosmos which includes my little world. We're so grateful that we can look into Philippians and see that this sovereign Christ, the creator of the cosmos, the lover of my soul, 
is also very near in this storm too. So I pray, Lord, that you, through your spirit, would enable, empower, encourage us to breathe, to relax, to look to you as our provider. Ultimately, we are but sheep, very gifted sheep, sheep nonetheless. We delude ourselves if we think anything other than we are utterly dependent on the shepherd. And for that one reason, we can take immense confidence in our present state, knowing that you are the sovereign, you are the lover of our souls. Ultimately, we know how everything ends, and it is in a beautiful relationship with you. I pray as we go about our workday world that you would be evident that others, as they interact with us, whether it's our bosses, our peers, our subordinates, that they would go, I wish there were 20 more of you in our organization, that we are part of the fabric. We are impacting culture. We are taking this gospel and we are living it. We are communicating it. We are being on mission in our marketplace ministry. So we lift our work up to you, Father. Say thank you and pray that you would continue to do your will in us and through us right there. Lord, uh, at this time of year, when we're thinking about gifts and decorating and travel and all that stuff, we are mindful of our money. We just can't help it. And uh, you know that. And so we, we bring whatever fears or anxieties we might have related to our money. And uh, you tell us that life is not found in the abundance of our possessions. So help us to take that to heart. Help us to be good stewards. And we do ask you, as the, the one who provides everything that we have, we ask you to provide for us. Give us what we need to do what you've called us to do. And then, Lord, would you help us to be full of gratitude, whether it's a lot or a little. Gratitude and contentment, Lord, would you help us to walk in that in these days. Thank you for caring for us in that way. And, and then lastly, I just think of all these needs, all these hardships. You tell us to come. Come all who are weary and heavy laden, and you'll give us rest. So, Lord, I pray in this season that can be so chaotic, so stressful. Lord, would you help us to find rest in you, to lean hard into your care, and help us to care well for each other. We pray all of that in Jesus' precious name. Amen.